0: Community College presents Diabetes into the New Decade
1: it's a disease that even if you do everything right things can go wrong uh, for example I was in a, I was hospitalized due to a foot infection at the beginning of the summer I was in the hospital 21 days uh, and I had been doing everything right you know I had an ulcer developed there, had been seeing a podiatrist, uh, never even cut my own toenails anymore, and things can still go wrong. When blood glucose levels are left too high for a long time, long-term complications can occur. Complications can happen in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and as Jim, a 33-year-old type 1 diabetic since the age of seven warns, complications can occur even with good control.
2: I think probably I lived under a misconception for a while that if you took very good care of yourself, which I believe I did, that you could avoid all the complications that are associated with the disease. Well, well, that fact just isn't true. If you take very good care of yourself, you can help minimize the complications, or when you get into them, uh, your ability to recover from them will be better, but... Uh, I think it's wrong for diabetics to assume that just because they're taking good care of themselves that they're not going to experience any of the other complications that diabetes can bring on. That, if that's a fear, that may have been the... I think it was more a surprise for me when complications started to happen because I said, well, I've been taking good care of myself all my life. How the heck did this happen? <laughs> you know. But it, diabetes is just that kind of disease. It has no rhyme or reason. Um, and uh, it just affects each person differently and individually.
1: To find out how long-term complications can be avoided or minimized, it is important for the diabetic patients to consult with their doctors. Dr. Rhoda Coben, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical School, New York City, explains.
3: Complications can occur in type 1 and type 2 diabetics, and, and some of it is probably just a matter of time, duration of the diabetes, rather than um, the type of the diabetes. Current thinking has it that the complications of diabetes are related to, To the level of blood sugar control and this is our biggest reason to want to keep people under control and to identify people who have diabetes who don't know they have it so that they can treat it Um, as most people know and I think even the people who kind of walk around denying that complications can occur even they probably know or have read someplace that diabetes causes complications including Um, Eye disease, which can lead to blindness. Probably the first or second most common cause of blindness in this country is diabetes. Kidney disease. Um, Kidney disease occurs in diabetics probably somewhere around um, 15 to 17 times more commonly um, with kidney failure in diabetics than in non-diabetics. And some people have estimated that Among people who are on dialysis for renal failure, uh, about a quarter of those people have diabetes as a reason for their end-stage renal disease. Um, Nerve damage can occur, and the nerve damage can be anywhere in the body, but particularly tends to affect the nerves going into the legs and can cause problems with um, healing or sensation in the legs and a particular kind of ulcers in the legs and particular kinds of deformity and derangement in the foot. And, of course, that can lead to amputations. And women, uh, people with diabetes, again, form a, a much larger uh, percentage of all the people with amputations in the hospital than does any other group. Now, those complications, eye disease, kidney disease, nerve disease, are all a result of what we call microvascular disease. They're all a direct result of... Uh, derangements within the very tiny or microscopic blood vessels that feed the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves. There's also an increased susceptibility to what we call macrovascular disease and what you think of as cardiovascular disease. That's heart attacks, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease, meaning hardening of the arteries in the large arteries going down into the legs. So all of those things occur much more commonly in diabetics than in um, people who are not diabetics. Heart attacks about twice as frequently, strokes at least twice as frequently, and peripheral, v- peripheral vascular disease even more commonly than that.
1: Lenore, a formerly out-of-control diabetic, speaks firsthand about the complications that she has suffered since the age of 51.
4: I was an out-of-control diabetic, and I weighed... 230 pounds, uh, when I had two massive heart attacks. And, uh, <clears throat> I was 51 years old. I had two massive heart attacks and right away had open heart surgery, had a three way bypass, went on to a, um, uh, a, um, a breathing, a respirator. Was on a respirator for eight months. Prior to this, though, I want to jump back. I had lost my leg to diabetes, and um, but was rehabilitated, went back to work, and I uh, felt pretty good uh, until my heart attack. And then I had open heart surgery, and I was extremely ill. Uh, I I was in the hospital for about eight months, during which time I was on a breathing, I was on a respirator. I could not speak, I could not breathe on my own and I could not eat because the breathing apparatus had made a hole between my trachea and my esophagus. So I ate nothing. I could not even have water, I could not have ice. Uh, while I was this ill, I coded four times at the in the hospital, which means my heart stopped and and um, I stopped breathing uh, each time they brought me back. I had various and sundry ulcers from all this business. I also went into a coma and was in a coma. Or, um, about two weeks during the time I was in the coma I had a stroke I lost and I lost my hearing and uh, not totally but very much of my hearing and the reason I'm telling you all this is it was all f- diabetes related Every single thing that happened to me was diabetes related. I didn't feel sick. I felt fine, but I wound up being one of the sickest people they ever had to deal with. And I say to myself, really, why did they bother dealing with me? Why did they? some doctors would never have even operated on my heart? My heart was not functioning at all. When I had my heart attack, I um, I went right onto a heart pump. I had no um, use out of my heart at all, and I was told in the hospital uh, by the administrators after I ha- was in my coma, I was asked if you if you s- stop breathing. While you're in the if you go back into the coma and you stop breathing, do you want us to keep you alive by artificial means? I could not speak, but my children had made me a spelling board. And I spelled the word yes. And the psychiatrist and the administrator from the hospital said, Why? What's the quality of your life going to be like? You can't walk, you can't talk, you can't eat, you can't even breathe on your own. Why do you wanna live? And I answered with this spelling board, I'll do it all. And I'm happy to say at this moment, I'm really fine. I went from taking a 100 units of insulin a day, twice a day, I used the shots of insulin to enable me to eat more food. Um, I was shooting up with insulin. I went from taking that much insulin, having out-of-control blood sugars, to taking no insulin. Today, I am insulin-free. I have lost about 70 pounds, and I am an insulin free diabetic i don't take uh pills i don't take anything i don't eat what i used to eat i very carefully watch when i put in my mouth i have made a decision in my life to save my life to make what happened to me worth worthwhile and and if this can help somebody realize but you don't have to feel sick. I function fine. And I looked okay. I was fat. But I didn't look sick. And I never acted sick. And I was dying from the disease.
1: In contrast, Lenore's sister Joan, a diabetic for 54 years, has never suffered from any complications.
5: I'm on insulin. I fully... Know about my disease and have been taking care of myself for 5four years. I did not know about the problems of diabetics until, um, oh, I fully realized all, all the different problems, I would say. And in, in, you know, in my adult uh, life, I have two children. I had no problems having two children. I was not under a special care. Having two children, they were born um, normally. I did not have a cesarean section. I did not have any problems, so I really didn't know that much about... Well, there was a fear, you know, that the children would be born diabetic, and at that time, diabetics, I was told, didn't live when they were pregnant or, you know, before insulin, but I had no problems. I don't think anyone's been on insulin for 54 years, the reason being that I got it when this one was first put on the market. And I went to a diabetic camp, uh, the first, first group of Camp NIDA, which is New York Diabetic Association. And I would say of the group that was there then, I don't think anyone's living. I really don't know of anyone who has it and is living and in good control as, as I am. And we think that with me, and I've spoken to someone at Jocelyn Clinic. I met um, the speaker who came from Jocelyn and the first thing he said to me is, uh, what do you attribute being in such good health? And for the most part, I am. Not totally, I have diabetes. I have to be careful with infections and things like that. But, uh, I said that I thought that somehow by keeping me on uh, They didn't know how to treat a diabetic at the time, and I was uh, taken to uh, Columbia Presbyterian in a baby's hospital. They really didn't know what to do. And so I was, my mother used to say, they starved me. They really gave me almost no food. They now know that by keeping the blood sugar of a very young child low, they can preserve some beta activity, and I think that's what's happened because I've never been near a coma or anything like that. I don't have the problems that other
3: people have. But I'm careful also. There's been a lot of controversy, a lot of talk, a lot of um, research going into why do some people get complications and why do other people not. Um, there are other factors besides diabetes that feed in. Smoking, obesity, family history, exercise. Um, diet, lipid levels, you know, cholesterol and triglyceride levels, all of those things complicate the picture so that it's not a clear-cut, straightforward picture, but in general terms, particularly the microvascular disease, seems to be that control of the blood sugar plays a significant role in whether or not the microvascular complications are going to occur. And we think that that has to do with the fact that chronically high levels, chronically high levels of blood sugar, set up reactions where the blood sugar, in some way, is transformed into abnormal abnormal products that affect the integrity of these little small blood vessels. So, if the blood sugar is normal most of the time, it's less likely to disturb the small blood vessels. Where if the blood sugar is high most of the time there's a greater risk that that will happen. And we see that, as you know, we test for the substance that's called glycohemoglobin or hemoglobin 1AC in the blood, which is a direct indicator of the average or overall blood sugar readings. And there are some good studies now that correlate glycohemoglobin determinations with nerve damage and renal disease in particular. So that we like to keep the glycohemoglobins normal because we believe that's a reflection of what's going on in the tissues as far as protein and as far as blood vessels in the tissues.
1: Blood glucose monitoring technology has advanced tremendously in the past 50 years. Patricia, age 41 and a diabetic since the age of four, discusses how these changes have affected her life.
6: I do, I use the blood glucose machines. They've been wonderful. When I was little, it was always the clinitest, uh, urine test. And that was like a guesswork, but you manage because that's all you had. But the blood glucose machines are excellent. Um I have one that I travel with because it's, uh, easy to, to carry. And another one I use at home because it's more accurate. I realize that the one that I use when I travel is at about 20 points off. So I, I, you know, I'm aware of that so I know when I take my blood that I'm usually 20, 20 points higher than what it indicates but um, I've, I've become so dependent on them that I'm lost without them. one day last about two weeks ago I left mine at home and it was like I was lost without it because I didn't know you know how I was how large of a lunch I should eat I really I use them I use I use both of them every day I check myself before breakfast before lunch before I drive home, before dinner, and before bed. I have little calluses on the ends of my fingers, but I figure long-range planning, when I get to heaven, they'll probably put me behind a harp.
1: (laughs) Self-monitoring of blood glucose aids the diabetic in the proper use of meal planning, exercise, and safe medication levels. By using a simple, miniaturized blood glucose monitor, glucose levels can be determined within seconds. Training in the proper use of these monitors is essential to good control. Town and Country Pharmacy in Ridgewood, New Jersey has developed a unique program whereby diabetic patients can get expert training in the proper use of these monitors. Trudy King is the consultant for diabetic supplies and machines.
0: Well they're all different types and all different sizes and it's for the convenience of the patient they all are fairly accurate uh... they're all pretty much the same as far as accuracy goes but this one is has a nice large readout where if somebody is has a little problem seeing the window display is large Um, you do have to use strips on all the machines and um well i can go through this one this is a Diascan s machine and um you do have to have strips to use with it and you calibrate each machine this one happens to have the advantage of having an easy calibration what we first you have to do is you turn your machine on and it'll make a beep and then you always get 3 eighths on the display that makes uh, lets you know that it is all working properly then you should verify the code and in this machine you press the side button makes another noise and it has the code number in this particular one in the diascan s it goes from c0 to 13 and you just calibrate it by pushing a little button until you get the correct number and that's it that now your machine is calibrated now what you have to do is wash your hands and soap and water you don't use an alcohol swab when you do your home testing on your finger you prick the finger with blood and get a Nice drop of blood, and you cover the pad, which are your little strips. Once you have your pad covered, you hit your timer button, and it's going to start counting down. At 28 seconds, it'll give you a buzz, and you have to wipe it with a cotton or a piece of tissue. You wipe it two times to make sure your co- your cotton is clear. Then you wait another 70 seconds and you put it into the machine. It'll also buzz again. You put your strip into the machine and at the end of 90 seconds, you'll get a digital reading. And that's really basically all it is in this particular one. That's the sound when you're supposed to wipe your your strip. Then it'll buzz again at 70 seconds, and then you put your strip into the machine and leave it there until 90 seconds when you will get a reading.
1: Now, you say that there are various machines on the market. Is this one of the larger machines?
0: Yes, it is. There are some that are the size of a pen and a small, thin credit card size and those some of those you don't have to do any wiping with at all you just put your strip in and in thirty seconds you just get a reading
1: so now this one is about to reach seventy seconds and it should beep right and now
0: put your strip into the machine and then you don't have to do anything else at the end of ninety seconds it'll buzz again and give you a digital reading
1: is this digital reading stored in this machine?
0: Yes, it is. This particular machine holds 10 memories.
1: What other technology is available for the diabetic patient?
0: Well, they have the injections that are used with pressure without needles. And those you really have to uh, get a doctor's prescription for. And they uh, a lot of the insurances do pay up to 80% on these machines. and. Um, They are good for someone that has a fear of the needle, sometimes younger children, or a lot of older people also are just afraid of the needle, you know, having to give themselves a shot every day.
1: What's the price range for all of this technology?
0: Well, the ones that are used without the uh, needles, they run about uh, $800, between seven and $800.
1: This is a Medijector?
0: Yes. Well, that's one of the companies. Yes, a Medijector. There's a few other uh, ones out there. Press Eject is one. But the Mediject, I believe, was one of the original.
1: How does that work?
0: well that when you you use your insulin the same and it pulls the insulin in and you just have different uh... settings on the machine and it just shoots it in it disperses under the skin instead of going in one little line It disperses the insulin under the skin, so you do have to monitor it carefully at the beginning because your requirements for insulin might be lower because it gets into the bloodstream quicker.
1: What about the cost for the glucose monitors? What does that go?
0: Oh, they have all different prices, around $150 or less, and then they all have rebates. So, it really shouldn't cost that much.
1: And then you have to get strips for these monitors?
0: Strips you will have to get every month, and they all run around the same. They, each machine, the strips come in about the same cost. Just about every single insurance covers the uh, monitoring machines. The only ones they might not cover are the insulin machines, the injector machines, because they are, uh, it would really have to be with your doctor's prescription
1: what about the the monitors should a doctor also s- uh, write a letter to the insurance company okay, suggesting
0: depending on the insurance companies but most of the time you don't even need a doctor's uh, permission to have it as long as you are an insulin dependent diabetic although they will now also pay for the other people in those cases most of the time you do have to have a doctor's letter
3: now how else to take care of diabetes is of course the thing that everybody's looking for is if there is a, um, a cure or if there's a way to prevent it or if there's a way to treat it that's less onerous less difficult than what people with diabetes do now uh, everybody knows that, that people are working on pumps the pump therapy that we have right now is really very primitive not really very useful for most diabetics um, but they're working on pumps that are going to be light years ahead of what we have right now that have computers in them that test the blood sugar in effect, have a computer program that integrates the blood sugar reading at that moment with what's been going on before, and then sends a signal that yes, insulin is needed or isn't needed and turns on and turns off. And that in effect, once that happens, that will be an artificial pancreas. Um, That also needs to be implantable. In other words, we need to be able to put it into somebody so that they're not walking around carrying extra baggage, and um, that's in the works. And there are some very exciting new pumps being tested now that are very close. Not there yet, but we're talking about close within five years probably. The other way to go, if not a mechanical pump, would be a biological replacement for the pancreas and people whose pancreases don't work, And there, again, there are two types. There's whole pancreas or partial pancreas transplants. People in Minnesota are doing a very good job with that. Um, And then there are just isolated islet cell transplants. In other words, taking the cells that make insulin, the islet cells, and putting them into someone in a vehicle so that the insulin can leak out or get out of the pancreas and glucose can get in so that the the islet cells can sense whether the sugar is too high or too low, and the membrane, the, the limiting um, membrane around them would not be permeable, would not allow other substances like antibodies to come in and attack those pancreases or those pancreatic cells. So that's being worked on, too. And I can't tell you which way I think uh, is going to win, which, which system I think is going to come ahead first I think right now that the pumps may be ahead the mechanical pumps may actually be ahead but you know this research is going on so quickly and there's so many leaps and bounds going on that from one six month period to the next when we go to meetings and hear our colleagues talk about what they're doing um, I may be totally wrong and it may be that biologically um, islet cell transplants will uh, take a big leap forward and everybody will get islet cell transplants someday. In terms of technology, um, we tend to, I tend to think when I think of ahead about what's going to be, I think what we're doing now is fairly primitive. But on the other hand, when I think back 10 or 15 years to what we had then, I think what we have is, is really great now. We have um, wonderful little monitors where people with diabetes can... Um, learn how to very easily obtain a drop of blood from a finger or an earlobe or even a toe, put it on a little strip of specially treated paper, and insert that paper into a machine, which in 30 seconds will read a blood sugar. That's kind of amazing because 10 years ago we couldn't do that. Um, If one has the information of what one's blood sugar is and is able to then uh regulate diet and activity and insulin or pills depending upon what someone needs uh, then one can control diabetes we find that it's just as easy if people are willing to test relatively frequently it's just as easy to regulate the diabetes with shots of insulin uh, as i mentioned pumps but frequent injections of insulin under the skin or subcutaneous insulin work as well as the currently available pumps as long as people are willing to do the work and test the blood sugar and try to make these adjustments in insulin. So pumps are are very primitive right now. The pumps that we have uh, need to be programmed, need to be told what to do. In other words, you still have to stick your finger, get the blood, and tell the pump what to do, whereas the pumps that we hope to have in the future will do that all automatically. So there are pumps available. They're worn externally. They're um, connected to tissue under the skin by means of a little needle that's inserted under the skin. And the pump has little buttons that you press to tell it how much insulin to deliver. So you still have to insert the little needle under the skin. It stays there for a few days. That's the only great advantage of the current pumps is that you don't have to stick with a shot of insulin. Uh, Insulin... Uh, can be given by shots. Insulin can be given by a little, air hole, a little air pump now, so it doesn't have to be given by a shot. And um, insulin can be given by a pump, all three ways. But there's a lot of research going on that's very actively trying to either avoid this disease or the set of diseases that we call diabetes or to treat it more effectively and more easily than what we're doing right now with, with people with diabetes.
0: Diabetes Into the New Decade was written and produced by Marshall Katzman. Technical assistance was provided by Jack Durr. Special thanks to Nancy Zobeline, RN, Certified Diabetes Educator, Englewood Hospital, Dr. William J. Muster, Ridgewood, New Jersey, Professor Regina Moore, Bergen Community College, and the Hackensack Medical Center. The presenter was Marshall Katzman. This is Amelia Duggan speaking.